Let us turn in God's word this morning to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. The text for this sermon will be the first eight verses of Isaiah 42. In light of the length of the text, we will not reread those verses. So I ask that you pay special attention to verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth Ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Keter doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord, and declare his praise in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holden my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs, and I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not, I will lead them in paths that they have not known, I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. They shall be turned back, they shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images. 
that say to the molten images, Ye are our gods. Hear, ye deaf, and look, ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth. For a spoil, and none saith, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. And it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his scriptures unto your hearts. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the time at which the prophet Isaiah labored among the nation of Israel was characterized by a spiritual low point for Israel. There was found division in this land. The ten northern tribes had separated from the two southern tribes so that Brother was separated from brother, sister separated from sister, parents separated from children. There was at this time the sin of idolatry, wherein Israel had generally fallen from the true and faithful worship of Jehovah God in the temple. And Israel had instead fallen into the sin of making and worshiping their own false gods. Because of these spiritual sins and weaknesses that were found throughout Israel, God chastised Israel. And the form of his chastisement was he removed from them their military might and power. So that the surrounding nations could come and attack the Israelites, and it would not be many years down the road in the future when the Israelites as a nation would lose their independence and would be taken off into captivity. It is at this low point, both politically and spiritually, that God called Isaiah the prophet to go to the Israelites and bring his word unto them. 
And what is striking about this text is the form of the word that God gave to Isaiah to bring to Israel. We would expect that the word that Isaiah would bring to Israel at this time of spiritual lethargy would be similar to the word that God commanded his prophets and ministers to bring at previous times in history. A sharp word. A word that admonishes and which calls them unto repentance. And although there is found in this text the call to repent and believe in Jehovah God, yet that is not the main idea of this text. Instead of God coming with a stern warning to Israel, God came to Israel with the words of this text and said, Look, behold, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. May God grant us his spirit this morning that we might behold his servant. Behold my servant. We use that as our theme. First, we'll consider that he is described in this text as an elect servant. Second, a ministering servant looking at the labors that God gives him to perform. And third, a visible servant whom we can, by faith, Behold, the word of God through Isaiah the prophet to Israel was, Behold, my servant. Now when we, who are Westerners, think of the idea of servanthood, it does not generally raise up positive thoughts within our mind. Western culture has moved beyond the practice of having servants. It's outlawed to have servants. And in large part that arises because of the abuse of servants. But if one examines biblically the idea of servanthood, one will find throughout the scriptures that far from servanthood being rejected or repudiated, Servanthood throughout the scriptures is exalted. It was a glorious thing to be a servant. To be a servant meant that there was a relationship that one had with the master. The master had the position of authority. The master had the right to have his will performed. And it was then the duty of the servant to be the one who executed the will of the master. The servant did not have the right of himself to impose his will upon the master. The servant was not permitted to argue with the master, to be defiant unto the master, but it was the duty of the servant to be obedient unto the express will of the master. And yet, as this text describes here, the relationship between master, the one who is the master and the one who is the servant, the text does not describe the relationship as one of 
begrudging submission unto the master. But instead, when one looks biblically at the idea of servanthood, oftentimes there was a most close and intimate relationship between the one who was the master and the one who was the servant. The closeness of that relationship comes out in the fact that it was mutually beneficial to have this relationship. The master was benefited in that he had a servant who could carry out the work that needed to be performed. The servant would assist the master in carrying out the work. But on the other hand, the servant was benefited by this relationship. The blessing that the servant received is the servant would be cared for by the master. He would enjoy a place even to live, provided him by his master. He would be given protection if the enemy would come and seek to fight against this servant. And so it was then considered to be a blessing to be a servant, especially if the one whom you served was great. What mattered is how great is the one that I am serving. The godlier, the more honorable was your master, then the greater honor would be likewise bestowed upon you, the servant. The servant described in this text is elect. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Election can be understood broadly as God's choice, God's sovereign, free, gracious choice of his people. Election is God determining who will be his sons and who will be his daughters and passing by those who are not chosen into his covenant or his family. Election consisted of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the countless multitudes of people who would come forth from Abraham. Included in, <clears throat> included in the elect were not only the Jews who were of the lineage of Abraham, but included in the elect were the Gentiles. This text alludes to the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ will be a universal or a Catholic Savior. The end of verse 2, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And then again, the end of verse 6 Give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. We may also consider election more narrowly. Generally, broadly, election consists of all of God's people, but narrowly understood, election does not consist of many, but election consists of one. There is one elect. There is one 
who is chosen by God. There is one in whom God's soul delights, who is the apple of God's eye. It is in this one elect that all of God's people are found. This one elect, according to the text, is God's servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect. There is a most intimate bond between the master and this elect servant. The master had chosen this servant, had selected this servant to be the one who would labor for him, who would be obedient unto him, who would carry out the will of the master. This servant lived in a covenant relationship with the master. The relationship was not merely a cold or a formal relationship. It was not a business relationship where two men enter into a formal contract, each agreeing what they will contribute unto this relationship. But instead, this is a relationship of friendship. It is a relationship of love and of trust. It's a relationship where the master leans upon the servant and the servant leans upon the master. It's a relationship where the master trusted this servant so much that he was confident that this servant would not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. Now who is this servant? You know it almost seems wrong, does it not? To give what is the clear and obvious answer. It's Jesus. But does not it almost seem blasphemous to speak of Jesus as God's servant? For after all, when we think of servanthood, we think of the master who is superior, and we think of the servant who is inferior. We think of the master who has authority, who has the right to impose his will, and we think of the servant who must renounce his will and perform the will of someone else. Are we then suggesting that Jesus is inferior to God? To say that Jesus is God's servant. Are we saying that, is this text teaching that Jesus is less than God? That Jesus had one will, one desire, but then as an obedient servant, he renounced his will and performed the will of God? The master? You sense, I trust, the difficulty here. 
How do we make sense of the fact that Jesus is, according to the Holy Scriptures, God's servant? What we must bear in mind, beloved, is the truth that Jesus Christ had two natures. On the one hand, he had a divine nature. He was God. And on the other hand, Jesus Christ had a human nature. He was man. These two natures of God, the divine nature and the human nature, were knit together in the incarnation so that God took on human flesh and became man. And when the scriptures speak then of Jesus Christ as being the servant of God, we understand that the sense in which Jesus is the servant of God is with respect to his human nature. This text is not teaching that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was somehow inferior to God the Father. This text is not teaching that the Father is the one who has the preeminence and the Son is the one who must then renounce his will and perform what is the Father's will. But instead, this text is speaking here of Jesus according to his human nature. And it's according then to his human nature that Jesus Christ in the flesh, who is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones, was indeed inferior unto and submitted unto the will of his Father. This is the church's confession. In one of our ecumenical confessions, the Athanasian Creed, we confess this very reality. The Athanasian Creed sets forth the truth of the Trinity, the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in the Athanasian Creed, Articles 32 and 33, that we confess this with regard to Jesus. Quote, Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Behold, God's elect servant, Jesus Christ, born in little Bethlehem, Ephrata who surrendered himself to the authority and the will of God. As God's elect in whom God's soul delighted, Jesus Christ was not combative against the will of the Father for him. He did not resist or seek to impose his will over the will of his Father. Paul teaches in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. This is the wonder of the incarnation, that he who was God and who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
He who was with God in the beginning, who is the word by which the heavens and the earth and all that is therein were created, he became flesh. There are many astounding and remarkable claims that the Holy Scriptures make. Claims so remarkable that the natural man, apart from faith, staggers in unbelief at those claims. There's the claim made in the Holy Scriptures that God, by his word, in six 24-hour days, created the heavens and the earth. And the evolutionist, as he hears that claim, staggers at that word of God and rejects it. There's the claim made in the Holy Scriptures that God sent at the time of Noah a universal flood, that the waters came up out of the deep, and as well that God sent down waters from the heavens above, that the whole earth was covered with water, that the entire human race was destroyed except Noah and his family, and unbelief as it is confronted with that word of God staggers at it. There are some who cannot believe, they say, the word regarding the resurrection of the dead. How can it be that Lazarus was raised up from the grave after having been dead for four days? But beloved, of all of these claims, bold claims that the scriptures make, I believe that one of the boldest, if not the boldest claim of the Holy Scriptures is this. That he who was the eternal, the living, the all-powerful, all-wise God condescended into this world was born of a woman in a manger, and became a servant. Behold, my servant. He came into this world not that he should be ministered unto, but that he should minister to others. The text describes for us those who would be the objects of his ministering, who would receive his pastoral care, it would be the Gentiles. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Gentiles are those who were known for being sinners, those who did not submit unto the law and will of God, but those who were outside of the nation of Israel. The text gives unto us a vivid description of the sinfulness of the Gentiles in the seventh verse. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Here is this man, and he sits in a prison cell. 
His hands and his feet are shackled with iron. The cell is dark so that he cannot see around in this cell, but even if there was light in that prison cell, he still would not be able to see, for the text tells us he is blind. This pitiful prisoner is destitute, impoverished, and daily growing weaker. There is no food, no drink, no sustenance for him in this prison cell, and without help, this man will pass away in this prison cell. This picture that God gives unto us in the seventh verse of the destitute prisoner is a reflection of you and of me, who are by nature prisoners. We have spiritual shackles on our hands and on our feet. We sit in a dark prison cell, blinded. Would that it were the case that we could say that we resisted going into this prison cell. Would that it were the case that we could say that we loved the light and dwelt in the light and wanted to remain in the light, but then there came a captor more powerful than we, and that captor imposed his will upon us and dragged us against our will, fighting and screaming down into this prison cell, and at last against our will, now we are shackled spiritually down in the cell of the prison. But our nature is such that we willingly walked into that prison cell. We put out our hands and said, shackle us. And we closed our eyes to the instruction of God's holy word. By our sins, we show our dislike of Jehovah God by the temptations which are set before us and our willingness to fall into those temptations, we show that we put our trust by nature in the things of this earth more than what we put our trust in Jehovah God. The lure of temptations is powerful. It promises unto us that we will be happy. There there will be freedom in the way of falling into this temptation. But in in the end, the promises of temptation ring empty, and they trap and ensnare that man. Although that man willingly walked down into the cell and gave his hands to be shackled, now that he is in that prison cell, he does not have the ability to get out of that prison cell. Sin has power over the individual who falls into it. Jesus, who is the elect servant of God, came to deliver such prisoners, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Notice with me how Jesus Christ 
ministers to his people. He labors, according to the second verse, quietly. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Crying and shouting out loud is what a man does who is trying to capture the attention of someone else. Crying and shouting, that's what the politicians do as they try to outdo the next politician with the bold claims that they will make. It is with pomp and circumstance that the earthly king comes into town announcing unto all that he is coming and that great many should come and pay attention unto him. Shouting and crying is what the weak man does as the weak man tries to exercise control over the individual who will not listen unto him. Crying and shouting, that's what we as parents sometimes do. At first we say it quietly, but then they don't listen and we say it louder and the children still don't listen. And then we say it with even more conviction and volume in our voices, thereby conveying that there is weakness in our words. If there was power in the words that were spoken, then it never would have been necessary for us to lift up our voices and even cry against the disobedience of the child. Jesus Christ, as the elect servant of God, does not have to come crying and shouting, for there is power in his word. He is the word who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. He is the everlasting, the living word. He is the one who continues up until this present moment in time, redeeming his people by the power of his word. At times he whispers unto his people in a still, small voice. At other times he's heard in the rustling of the wind, which pictures for us the Holy Spirit as the Spirit goes forth with unstoppable power. Jesus Christ comes and he speaks quietly but powerfully unto his people. And then what is the manner of his laboring as well? He labors gently. The third verse. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. A reed. A tall, slender plant, type of grass, oftentimes found in wetlands. This reed, according to the text, is bruised. Bruised. It's been injured. It's still alive, but it's been bent. And apart from gentle care being shown unto this reed, it will break and be destroyed. Smoking flax refers to a candle, the wick of a candle. There's flame on the wick of that candle, but it's not a bright flame, not a strong flame, but it's flickering. 
It's about ready to be extinguished. The wind blows upon it and about puts that flame of the candle out. Regarding both of these, the reed and the wick of the candle, the word of God is that he will not break it, nor will he quench, nor will he extinguish the smoking flax. And that is a picture of how Jesus Christ labors among the members of his church. The church is like that bruised reed and smoking flax. And who cannot but relate unto these figures? How many bruises, how many injuries do not the members of the church sustain? Somebody slanders us. There's another bruise. There's a trial that God puts in our lives. Sickness, disease. There's another bruise. There are strained relationships. Difficulties in the home. Trials with children. Difficulties even in marriage. Bruise after bruise after bruise. The word of God is that Jesus Christ, as God's elect servant, will not break the bruised reed. He does not harass or oppress his people, but he supports the poor, the weak, the feeble. In so doing, he reveals the grace of God. For who by nature even cares about a bruised reed? Who's going to take the time to take that bent-over piece of grass and stand that piece of grass back up again? The very fact that Jesus Christ pays attention to bruised reeds shows his love and his grace for the members of his church. Behold, beloved, this visible servant. Behold him, for you are, by the faculty of faith, able to behold him. God has revealed this servant unto you. God is not ashamed of this servant. If God were ashamed of this servant, then God would hide this servant away. He would not put this servant in a public place for all to view him. But rather, God is pleased with this servant in whom God's soul delights, the text tells us. And so God comes to you and to me, and God says, for your good, behold this servant. It is for the good of your mind and for the good of your soul 
that you watch this servant, the temptation is not to behold this visible servant, but instead to turn and to behold something else. And by nature, what is it that we behold? By nature, we would become fixated upon the fact that we are a bruised reed. And our mind would think and think and think about the fact that we are just a bruised reed. There's this brokenness in my life. There's this hurt that has happened unto me. We behold our weaknesses, our imperfections, our shortcomings, And in becoming fixated upon the fact that we are but a bruised reed, then inevitably we become despondent. We lose our joy in walking through this earthly pilgrimage. And so it is that Jehovah God, in his tender loving care for you and for me, tells us, Behold, my servant. Yes, we acknowledge. That we are like that bruised reed and smoking flax. But God says, take your eyes off of that and lift them up to behold my servant. Behold him as he came into this world. As he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, little among the thousands of Israel. Behold him in that manger, for there was no room for them in the inn. Behold him as he lived a righteous and an upright life before God. Behold not only the incarnation of this man, but behold as well the end of this man's pilgrimage upon this earth. Behold him as he took your sins and the curse that is due unto you for them, And he took them unto himself. Behold him as he willingly walked down into that prison cell. As he gave his hands to be pierced upon that cross. Behold him as he descended the obedient servant unto the depths of suffering where God poured out upon him the curse for our sins. Behold him on the third day after his resurrection. As God raised him from the dead, the tomb was empty. Behold him as God took his servant from this earth and exalted his servant to the highest possible position of honor. Behold him and worship him. God does not tell us to behold this servant simply so that we can grow in our intellectual understanding of who this servant is. God does not tell us that we are to grow in understanding about the two natures of this servant, the divine nature and the human nature of this servant, simply so that we can display unto others the knowledge that we have of the scriptures and the doctrines that are contained therein. But God's commandment unto us is to behold this servant so that it might elicit from us a response of praise unto God. Worship him 
who is the great and the glorious God. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we love thee because thou hast first loved us. Wilt thou graciously hold us? Wilt thou give unto us hope of life everlasting? Wilt thou grant unto us comfort in the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins? And wilt thou grant unto us peace, even a peace that passes understanding through Jesus Christ? Wilt thou receive our worship and forgive the sins even committed during this service? For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.